Good evening. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look there in just a few moments. We are in a series. Hopefully you've been tuning in online. If not, you won't be completely lost. But we are looking at baptism from a, a bit of a deeper perspective, I guess. I really struggled with the title of this series. And, and I don't know that I'm still sold on what I settled on. Rethinking baptism, I'm not asking you to rethink your baptism necessarily, nor am I saying that we should rethink baptism as far as how it fits into the plan of salvation or how we do it. I just want us to dig a little deeper below the surface when thinking about baptism. Now, we've got a couple more lessons in this series uh, tonight, next week, and then on the 18th, we're going to wrap it all up with my good friend Wes McAdams. He's going to be here and we are going to co-preach the last lesson and hopefully put a nice little bow on all this and hopefully it will be interesting and you will enjoy that. So that'll be on the 18th. Then on the 25th of April, all our elders will be up here with me to give the annual State of the Church Address. We've been putting that off until we could be together in person and so we're looking forward to that on the 25th and hopefully you'll be here for that as well. First Peter chapter 3 starting at verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Let me ask you, when you hear the word saved, what do you think of? My guess is we make a connection to sin right? So saved or salvation means I am saved from my sins. I have salvation from sin. When we think of saved, that's where we often go as to this spiritualized aspect of it. However, that's not necessarily what Peter is talking about. You know, Peter, when you look at the greater context of 1 Peter chapter 3 and really the greater context of the whole letter or letters of Peter, what you see is something bigger than just a spiritualized message. There is a very real message here concerning physical people and a physical salvation. Now, you know how I like to connect the Old Testament with the New Testament. I think it's important to understand how the Old Testament sets up the New Testament. So let's do that tonight. Let's go back and let's look at Psalm 7. And we're going to read it in its entirety because it's not very long and it sets up what we want to talk about. O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away, while there is none to deliver, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul, <coughs> excuse me, pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries, and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you, and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord. According to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. 
For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. So what's the psalmist talking about? What's he alluding to here? Well, he's talking about pursuers. He's talking about his enemies coming after him. And he's saying, God, if, if I've done something wrong here, if I am at fault, go ahead. Let them kill me because I deserve it. However, if not, then save me. Save me from my pursuers. Save me from their wickedness. Save me from those who are seeking to kill me. He's crying out to God for salvation. Salvation from what? From his enemies. From his pursuers, right? He goes on to say, if I've done wrong, if I'm the bad guy, then let them destroy me, let them kill me, because I deserve that. But the psalmist is seeking refuge from God. Obviously, he feels like he's right in God's eyes, and so he's asking God to step in and do something because he believes he's innocent. In other words, I don't think that I'm wrong, but if I am, then so be it. Let them have their way with me. Otherwise, please step in, God, and destroy them. May they get what's coming to them. Remember, the Psalms are hymns. God's people sing them to remind themselves of God's salvation, that God has led them and delivered them and guided them all along the way and has saved them from danger. Psalm 7 is not unique. We see this over and over again in the Psalms. It's a common theme or thread that is repeated many times over. The psalmist is crying out to God for rescue. And what do we do? We typically spiritualize the message, right? And so we see saved, we see rescue, and we assume that it's talking about saved from sin. But there's a very physical aspect to this. And by the way, I'm not saying that that's always a bad thing, okay? I, the last thing I want to do is seem like some scholar that arrogantly has figured something out that, that I want to impart that wisdom to you. I, I, number one, I'm not a scholar. And number two, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be uh, condescending in any way. Certainly, we are right to spiritualize the message. But what we often do is we take, you know, passages like this and we say, well, you know, it's talking about salvation from sin. God deliver me from sin. And it's not. It's talking about physical rescue. God saved me from my pursuers, my enemies. What if I told you that the same message we see in Psalm 7 is the same message that Peter is giving out in 1 Peter chapter 3? Let's consider the entire context. Back up in 1 Peter chapter 3 to verse 13. He says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. 
And do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile uh, uh, your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Peter is talking to people who are facing something very similar to what the psalmist was facing in Psalm 7. These folks are facing persecution. They're being pursued, if you will, by the enemy, by those who are seeking to persecute them. So the message is the same. And it's really not the spiritualized message that we make it out to be. There's a very real physical aspect to this. Go back to to chapter 2 of 1 Peter, and you can start in chapter 3, or excuse me, verse 13, and you find that Peter is instructing the people on how to live as exiles. They are aliens and strangers, remember. And so he is instructing them on how to operate in a foreign land. He says, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. This is 1 Peter 2, verse 21 and following. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Jesus was their example. And what did Jesus do? Well, he didn't revile in return. He didn't return evil for evil. What did he do? He took refuge in God, just like the psalmist. Jesus entrusted himself to God, and Peter says, that's what you must do as well. You entrust yourself to God and be about doing good works until Christ returns or until you leave this earth. Focus on what you need to do here, living as an exile. Focus on doing good and trust yourself to God. In essence, Peter is telling the people, ask God to audit you. If you've done wrong, then, then you know, ask God to expose that. If I've done wrong, God, let me know. If I'm being persecuted because I've done wrong, then so be it. However, Peter's also saying that you're saved before God. And you're being saved before God. There is a physical aspect to this. Peter's audience is under persecution. They're under fire. And so how are they to act? Well, obviously they've been forgiven in the sight of God. And they wanted, and Peter wanted them to be confident in light of their salvation. Be confident that God would rescue them. Entrust your soul to God. Entrust your life, your whole self to God. Let Him work. You do good works. That's what Jesus did. Jesus put his soul in the hands of God. 
And Peter's saying, you do the same thing because you're being saved right now. And so it is with us. We're certainly guilty. The psalmist was guilty, but he believed that he was right in the sight of God. We're certainly guilty. We know what we deserve, but we've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, so we stand justified before a holy God. Baptism is entrusting my life to God, and we need to think of it as such. Baptism is entrusting my life to God. I'm placing my soul, my salvation in the hands of God. He has rescued me from sin and death, but he's also rescuing me as we speak. Last year, we talked a lot about Psalm 37. So hopefully you remember some of this that we're going to go over, but turn there with me. Psalm 37. And starting in verse 1, here's what we read. The psalmist says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. You know what the message is here? Evil will not win. That's the message. Evil is not going to win. That's the song that is being sung when life doesn't seem fair, when it seems like you're behind the eight ball, when it seems like evil is winning, it doesn't. Just hang on. You're going to be the winners in the end. You're the victors. God is in control and God is going to bring about victory. And notice the language. Do not fret. Trust in the Lord and do good. Commit your way to the Lord. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Why? Why should I do this? Why shouldn't I fret? Why should I trust in God? Why should I commit my way to Him? Because in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. And do you know who's going to be left? The redeemed? The meek? The anav? You remember we used that Hebrew term last year when talking about this passage? Who are the anav? Well, we are, right? But then this particular passage, it's God's people. Evil will be vanquished. God's going to take care of that. What's the role and responsibility of God's people? Hang on, persevere, trust in the Lord and do good, right? The Israelites are singing to remind themselves that God has got this. It's a hymn of encouragement. There are times when it seems like evil is winning, and there are times when we are tempted to do something about it, right? We live in an action hero culture. We want to take matters into our own hands. That's why we get fired up with the action movies. We see the hero take vengeance on the bad guys. You know, our hero rides in on a white horse and maims and kills all the bad guys, and we cheer them on because that's what we want. We want vengeance. That's why we love the stories in the Bible like David and Goliath. 
You know, here's this giant mocking the Israelite people, and we say, go get him, David. And so he slays the giant, cuts his head off, and parades through town with it. And we're saying, yeah, that's, that's the David. That's who I want to be, right? And we hear sermons about it. Be a David. Slay the giant. When in actuality, if you were any part of that story, you'd be just Joe Israelite standing on the sideline, wishing you could do something, wishing someone would do something, right? Praying that God would step in. Praying that God would take care of it because you were totally and completely helpless. Refrain from anger. Leave the wrath to God because when we act out in anger, do you know what we usually do? We sin. When we respond in anger, we typically act unrighteously. Vengeance is God's department. We let God have it. We let Him take control of it. Now, it should be understood that the psalmist here, not just in Psalm 37, but a lot of times in the Psalms, we see that he has a 401k mindset. Clay and I were talking about this the other day, being a financial advisor, you know, I, I, you, can, you can sit there and have a 401k and you can look at it every day and freak out, right? But you got to understand that you're in it for the long haul. You know, it, you're hoping by the time you get ready to retire, it's good. But if you look every, at it every day, it's going to drive you crazy, probably. The psalmist has the long haul in view, uh, mind in view here. This is a long haul perspective. This isn't going to happen suddenly or quickly, perhaps. So this hanging on is going to take a while. It's about patiently waiting. This hymn is about what will eventually happen, not what's going to happen tomorrow. The enemy may win the day, but he's not going to win the war. God is. Then notice verses 18 through 20. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Our temptation is to confront the evil and to do something about it. When the psalmist is saying, no, no, hang on. Let God work, be patient, wait for the Lord and keep his way. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. You see, a meek person is a waiting person. Meekness says, I will wait. I will wait. I'll wait for the Lord. Because I'm in this for the long haul. Therefore, I will let God work. Meekness is about buying into the big picture when you want to give in to your anger and a short-term solution. Meekness is about trusting God and patiently holding on until the bigger picture comes to fruition. Meekness assumes adversity. There's an assumption of opposition. And the meek individual lets God take care of the vengeance and wrath stuff while he trusts in God. And please hear me on this. This is not passive. It takes great strength to restrain yourself, not to act out in anger. Meekness is a path to victory. That's another theme of this psalm. If you hold on, you win. The Israelites were headed towards the promised land. That wasn't in doubt. God's plan could not be thwarted. They just needed to trust in the one who was leading them and who was going to save them. And that's the same theme in 1 Peter chapter 3. 
What we read from a moment ago. Did you notice that Peter even makes reference to Noah? Look at it. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, and we'll stop there. Corresponding to what? Well, to what was just been said about Noah. Noah and the salvation of his family by means of an ark. Was Noah's salvation spiritual? Well, it was very much physical, wasn't it? I mean, it was a physical ark that saved them from a physical flood. And Noah waited, and he waited patiently. He trusted the Lord and did good. God was his refuge. The water washed the world clean and it saved Noah and his family. And corresponding to that, Peter says, baptism is now saving you. Now saves you. Baptism is now saving you. The wickedness surrounding Christians during the time of Peter's writing would eventually be punished. Evil would eventually be vanquished and God's people would be saved. Yes, they were saved through baptism spiritually. No question about that. Their sins were washed away. But there's more to what Peter is saying here. He's saying that your salvation has already begun. You've already been separated and saved from the world because you appealed to God for a good conscience. Like the psalmist, he appealed to God for a good conscience. He said, God, if I'm wrong, then then let my pursuers overtake me. Let me be killed because I deserve it. But he appealed to God for a good conscience. He believed he was right in the sight of a holy God and that God could do something about it. And we do the same thing. Peter is reminding the people. They made an appeal before God. They confessed their sin. They had been washed in the waters of baptism. And they made their appeal before God. They entrusted their life to God. And because of all of that, God was now saving them. The rescue process had begun. But we look at this and we say, see, you got to be baptized. This is our proof text, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. you got to be baptized. Baptism now saves you. But that's really not the message that Peter is getting across because he's talking to people that have been baptized. This is a message to people that have been baptized. And what he's saying is, remember your baptism. Remember that you made an appeal to God with good conscience. Remember that God is now saving you. You've been saved spiritually, and he's going to rescue you physically as well. Maybe not in this life. You may not survive. The persecution may get you. The enemies may overtake you, but you're going to live on in eternity. That's what baptism is. Baptism is me saying, I trust my life to you, God. I give my life to you. You are my refuge. You will save me. In fact, you are saving me. Just like the people of old, the Israelites, we are trusting in God to save us. Yes, baptism is washing me clean of my sin. It is me contacting the blood of Christ, but it's also me entrusting myself to God that he will save me. It's an act of surrender. Baptism is saying, I trust you, God. You will save me. You will vindicate me. The enemies of sin and death can't win. They may win the day, but they're not winning the war because we win. I realize that 
like Peter, most of you that I'm speaking to tonight have been baptized. But if you're thinking about it, if you're contemplating it, then then please come and talk to me. Come talk to Jake or, or, or David or Luke or, or one of the shepherds and, and let us talk to you more about it. If you've noticed, I, I don't typically give a traditional invitation at the end of the lesson. You know, here, Romans 10, 17, repent, Luke chapter 13, verses 3 and 5, and confess, you know, baptism, you know, Acts two thirty eight. I, I don't typically do that. I want to always offer an invitation, but I think what happens all too often is, is maybe we answer the invitation, but we're not really sure what we're signing up for. I don't want somebody to decide on baptism on a spur of the moment. I don't want that to be an emotional response only. This is serious stuff. The reason why we have so many people leave the church building after being baptized and never come back is because they never picked up a cross on their way out. Our job is not to get people baptized. Our job is to make disciples. That's the Great Commission. And certainly baptism is a part of that. But there's a bigger picture here that we have to see, one of discipleship, one of being a finisher, hanging on until the end. And so if you want to talk about that, let me know. Certainly, I have the time and we can make the time to do that. Baptism is about a lot of things. One of the big things that it's about is hope. I was at a funeral not long ago. I participated in the funeral. It was a graveside service. And it was coming to the end of the graveside. It was a, a, a military funeral. And so uh, I do my part first. I step back and the military comes in and they, they do their honors. And as it was wrapping up, this, this older gentleman gets out of a truck with, look like probably his grandson. And they walk past the tent where we were at. He walks past the tent and he goes out to a grave marker, a headstone. And he's standing in full view of everyone who is sitting and standing under the tent watching. And he's standing there and he's talking out loud. Everybody can hear him. And I'm sitting there thinking, really? Is this guy going to do this right now? Like, like he's oblivious to us having a funeral? Then he takes out a cigarette, he lights it, and he smokes it a couple of times, and then he lays it on the grave. At least two or three times, Larry was there, at least two or three times, it spits. And we're all sitting there going, what in the world? Then he puts his hand on the gravestone, and he, you can tell he's getting choked up. And so he finishes about the time that we get done with the funeral. And so I'm walking back to my truck, and he's walking towards me. And so I just stop, and I said, I, I noticed that you were... That you were over by this, this grave. Uh, is, is this somebody you knew? He said, yeah, it was my son. So he died of cancer. One year ago, that day, at that exact time. That's why he was there, somewhat disruptive of the other funeral. And I said, you know, I told him my name and I said, you know, would you like to talk? He put his head down. He was... He was tearful. I, I, I patted him on the back and just dust coming out of his jacket. And I said, here's my number. You call me and let's talk because you need hope. 
And we all need hope. We all need hope. And of all the messages we see in the Bible and the Psalms and even over in 1 Peter, it's all related to hope. There is hope in the child of God who is walking this life with all its difficulty, with all its adverse circumstances. There is hope. God is now saving you. Your baptism didn't just save you. It is saving you. You are being rescued as we speak. This isn't all that there is. Evil doesn't win. Death doesn't win. Sin doesn't win. We win. Can we help you? Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?